This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we begin with the on-again, off-again war brinkmanship with Iran. MIT historian Puyi Alimaygam joins us to look at the intensifying crisis with Iran that saw us about 10 minutes away from military strikes last week before Trump pulled back. We get Puyi's analysis of the crisis, the implications and goals of the increasing bluster, ever more draconian sanctions, and the U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear accord with Iran. We also get his take on what the increased tensions mean for domestic dissent in Iran. And then UCI professor of Chinese history Jeff Wasserstrom, just back from Hong Kong, has written an article in The Atlantic about the weeks-long gigantic protest movement in Hong Kong that was met with extreme police violence. That only brought more people to the streets, protesting a bill that would allow the extradition of suspects to mainland China, a further threat to Hong Kong's partial autonomy. For the moment, the bill has been shelved thanks to the massive protests in the streets, but not the efforts to erode the city's freedoms. We get Jeff Wasserstrom's analysis in the second half of this installment of Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to begin today talking about the intensification of the crisis in Iran with the United States blustering and an taking us to the brink of war, then pulling back. But yet this intensification has increased and the danger has not passed. And so I think we need to stand back and have a look at what is behind this crisis and who are the forces that are pushing for it. And I've asked Puya Alimagam to join us today. He's an historian of the modern Middle East at MIT and the author of the forthcoming book, Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings, that'll come out next year from Cambridge University Press. And, and he writes pretty much everywhere in the alternative media and was the student of Juan Cole and so also writes on informed comment, the Fletcher Forum, and he tweets. I'm going to get your Twitter account in just one second, but I first wanted to welcome you, Puyu Alimagam. Hi, Susie. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. And tell our listeners where they can follow you. I'm on Twitter at iPuya. It's like iPhone or iPod, but iPuya, and the spelled I-P-O-U-Y-A. Uh-huh. It's the same handle for Facebook as well. And basically, I try to, given the confines of tweet character counts, try to question a lot of the dominating narratives in terms of U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis not only Iran, but the whole Middle East. Right. So I think that's a very good place to begin, because there's a lot of confusion over what the United States is really aiming to do. And of course, we've seen with Trump, he's the kind of guy that, you know, will bluster us into a crisis and then pull back and just move on as if it didn't happen. It, mm-hmm. Taking defeat as if it isn't defeat, turning it into victory, and then trying to meet with a, you know, a strong man. We've seen this over and over again, who he mm-hmm. then falls in love with. <laughs> but I don't think that's yeah. what's really at case here. And I, and of course, we do have his national security team with the, let's just say it, the odious John Bolton, who when you look mm-hmm. at him, you just know what's behind him. And then Pompeo, who at least if you look at the briefings, Pompeo seems to have been almost a voice of moderation compared to, say, Bolton. But let's just go back to First, just what do you think has happened just this week, and how does the history of our relationship matter in looking at these tensions? Sure. I would just first add that in addition to John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, 
There's also Rudy Giuliani. He's not part of the security team, but he's also very much part of that pro-war faction within the administration that really wants a hawkish line. And one reason why it's kind of hard, you mentioned that there's a lot of confusion, and that's really fair because the U.S. policy vis-a-vis Iran is confused. There is zero coherency in terms of the U.S. strategy with Iran. The United States sanctions Iran, even though Iran continues to abide by the nuclear agreement. And then it says that if it does indeed violate the nuclear agreement, which is a violation that came after the U.S. violation, then it will also be sanctioned. Mm. So the idea being that it's a confused approach. We sanction Iran, even though it it is abiding by the nuclear agreement. Then if it violates it, we're going to sanction it even more. So it's a lot of sticks Mm -hmm. and no carrots. And that's why really the confusion that you feel and that all of us feel is really normal because the approach to Iran is really confusing. There is no real coherent strategy. Okay. And then also, it's I guess it's worth saying that even though the United States, or let's just say Trump, pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, some of the other partners have not. And Iran has been more, I would say, responsible. But what the brink of this crisis, of course, was the explosion, or whatever you want to call it, uh, last week, followed mm-hmm. by the downing of a drone. And maybe we could just, mm-hmm. just briefly explain to the listeners you know, what that was. Was it a, like, sink- sure. sinking of the, you know, of the Lusitania? Yeah, I, I would also say, I mean, for the United States, this, or for the Trump administration, this escalation is the starting point. Iran is accused of uh, attacking a, um, you know, an oil vessel uh, with a mine, even though the Japanese captain himself has cast out on this, saying that it was a drone, not necessarily a mine. And then the Department of Defense is, Evidence is Iran clearing mines in the Persian Gulf, which isn't much evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I said, for the U.S., the starting point is this alleged Iranian attack on the Japanese oil vessel. But for the Iranians, the starting point has been November 4th, 2018, when the United States, with President Trump at the helm, has sanctioned Iran as part of its so-called maximum pressure campaign. So there's an economic war what the Iranian government says is economic terrorism that isn't necessarily targeted strictly uh, at the Iranian regime, but the population designed or with the goal of encouraging the Iranian population to rise up against the government. So for the Iranians, the starting point isn't this, this um, you know, attack on the vessel, but these economic sanctions that have more or less nose, uh, caused a nosedive of the Iranian economy. And the Iranian economy is an economy that sustains or feeds Um, you know, about 83 million people. So these are important things that we have to consider when we talk about starting points. Right. And this is another good place to bring it up, Puya, because it's not just that these sanctions are punishing and medicines can't get through and people will Mm -hmm. die as a result of that, but also that Iran, you know, like it or not, is a form of a democracy. And there has been multiple, you know, mass movements against the religious regime. And it Mm -hmm. seems that every time that these movements really start to get going, the U.S., you know, comes out with its hard line that ends up strengthening the regime rather than weakening it. And I, you know, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the history, but I just wondered how you see that. Is there some sort of twisted thing that we need to keep Iran as an enemy? It's strange. Every government needs an external enemy, whether it's manufactured or it's real. The Iranian government needs an external enemy. The United States needs an external enemy. It's really, really good to get people to rally behind each respective flag. But what ends up happening is that every time there is a moderate president at the helm in Iran and there is 
the potential for reconciliation between Iran and the U.S. Um, and these reconciliations, these, the poten- the, these potential reconciliations always come at a risk to that moderate president. Right? They're sticking their neck out where the conservatives in Iran are saying, you're foolish to think that you could trust the United States, that the United States you know, is just, you know, wants you know, to build a, a functional relationship with the Iranians. And every time one of these moderate Iranian presidents sticks his neck out, it is oftentimes, you know, the, it's had it, the rug pulled out from underneath it. One case in point was in 2011 when 9-11 happened. Uh, the Iranian government was one of the first ones. Uh, the Iranian government was President Mohammad Khatami, a reformist, mm. very moderate president. He was the first head of state to come out and condemn 9-11. I think part of it was to, to get ahead of any accusations, to be like, you know, we didn't do it. But also, there was, uh, you know, it was very consistent with Mohammed Khatami's, um, you know, tenure in office was one of reconciliation with not just the United States, but with the West in general. Um, and the United States and Iran kind of worked together secretly behind the scenes to topple the Taliban in, in neighboring Afghanistan. But then a few months later, um, Bush, uh, President Bush, then President Bush, Bush Jr., W. Bush, had the State of the Union address that labeled Iran as part of this weird or fictitious axis of evil, evil with Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Uh, and for Iranians, that was completely weird because Iran and Iraq fought an eight-year war at the time, uh, or before uh, 2001. To now be lumped together uh, didn't make sense, but also kind of affirmed the, the right wing in Iran that came out and condemned or, or really undercut Khatami saying, this is what you get for you know, trusting the United States or trying to build a relationship with them. And this is happening now, too, where a moderate government or a moderate president is in power, he came to power on the promise of improving relations with the West in order to improve the economic situation in Iran because it was President Obama that had strapped Iran with very punishing sanctions. And his whole campaign, President Rouhani's campaign, was about you know, improving the economy through improving relations. And it actually worked. He improved relations, the economy was slowly getting better, the right wing in Iran was opposed to this idea of reconciling with the United States or signing an agreement saying that the United States wants Iran to be defenseless, you can't trust the United States, and lo and behold, <laughs> when President Trump violated, he didn't withdraw, he violated the UN resolution that backed the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. A lot of the right wing in Iran was like, see, you're naive to think that the United States has ever reconciled itself with the aftermath of the Iranian Revolution in 1979. How do you read, then, what Trump did? Because he, of course, you know, one doesn't know what really is in his head other than, you know, his Mm -hmm. own narcissistic personality, how much of a stake he has in these things. But he has people around him. And we need to talk about, you know, I guess the people around him and the outside powers who are encouraging a U.S. strike on Iran. And, of course, Trump came to power saying, you know, that there was a mess in the Middle East. He never would have been there. And now we've seen him act differently because he has these neocons, leftovers from the Bush administration and before, around him who were pushing in a different direction. So I'd like you to kind of address how you see whether or not Trump, you know, wants a conflict and who within his administration or the allies around him that might be pushing for this. Yeah, I mean, there's always a difference when there's a candidate versus when they actually come to power. So candidate Trump was talking about the Saudis, their role in 9-11, you know, all these things. When he came to power, he signed a $110 billion arms agreement uh, with with the Saudis, um, talked about 
candidate Trump also talked about not entangling the U.S. in the Middle East conflict. Then President Trump, even though he also talked about withdrawing from the Iran agreement, when he came to office, he indeed withdrew from the uh, arms uh, the nuclear deal with Iran. But also now the nuclear, the whole point of the nuclear agreement was to prevent an armed confrontation with the United States between Iran and the United States. Now he, now that he's subverted that agreement. Uh, there's a potential that he, that President Trump will go against candidate Trump in so much as there might be, you know, as we see with the news, uh, an armed confrontation with Iran. Mm-hmm. In terms of who wants it, we know that um, obviously uh, John Bolton is a big proponent. Uh, he's a 40-year proponent of an uh, armed confrontation with the Iranians. Uh, who his backers are, uh, there are these um, ultra-right-wing uh, uh, diasporic um, expatriate uh, Iranians in the United States that back uh, Bolton. They've invited him to their conferences. They give him. They've given him really lucrative speaking deals. And the idea is that he has. He has. They have his ear, uh, and that's their man in the White House. Pompeo definitely. Uh, Secretary Pompeo certainly has an axe to grind with the Iranians, um, but also there are the big Republican financiers. Mm-hmm. Um, they also. Are, are pushing President Trump to turn his back on candidate Trump in a way. Um, and that one of them is the, the moving of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Right. Um, we know that Sheldon Adelson is a big proponent. He paid in part uh, for Trump's inauguration. And he, too, is promoting a very hardline uh, anti-Iran approach. Not to mention um, Netanyahu himself in Israel, who's been pushing and pushing and pushing on this. Yeah, so then there's, then, they, then there's a regional actor. So yeah. Netanyahu and the Israelis, uh, Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis, mm-hmm. uh, bin Zayed and the Emiratis, uh, and all three of them are kind of working together now, which is really weird because given the history of Israel and the Saudis, um, they were always at odds with each other. But post-U.S. invasion of Iraq, they found common ground uh, in, this, in the Iranian enemy. So now they're working together, not just regionally, but also in D.C., uh, the Emiratis, the Saudis, the Israelis, and their think tanks in D.C., and the money that's behind them, and the power and voices that that money is able to buy, and those think pieces that are being produced right now, left and right, in the media, mm-hmm. are all part of this like structure of feeling that is pushing the American population to accept a hardline American approach vis-a-vis Iran that's full of sticks and no carrots. There's a couple of things that I want to bring up uh, uh, within this. And one, of course, is that what we've seen, you know, from literally, I don't know if it's it's since the end of the, uh, you know, the Second World War, that obtaining nuclear weapons is a ticket to stability and safety. Not that we like that that they in themselves are safe. They're not. But the United States doesn't attack nuclear powers. And so that's been, you know, and and it's the, the... continual wars that we've been in have been uh, against one-off tin pot dictators. Even in Iraq, that regime was not a solid regime. Iran is a very different animal. And as you said, it's 83 million people. The population is young. There's a history. It's nationalistic. If attacked, it will fight. This is not going to be a cakewalk. It would destabilize um, uh, an already destabilized region and wreck economies across the uh, the board. So what does the U.S. get out of, uh, you know, making this war bluster? And maybe, you know, what it, what would Iran get out of something like this? So maybe it's a, it's a large question, but let's see what you have to say. Yeah, I would say that the Iranians 
don't stand to gain much from a conflict with the United States, naturally. Uh, while Iran is much bigger and much more powerful, much more prepared than Iraq ever was, mm-hmm. um, it's still, you know, it's not ready to deal with American firepower. Um, but its whole strategy, its whole military strategy is defensive. It doesn't really have offensive weapons or offensive weapons capability. Um, it, its whole defense strategy, what, what a lot of academics call it, it's a guerrilla state. Mm-hmm. It's it's aimed at asymmetrical warfare, which essentially means that if it was ever to be occupied, then that occupation would be costly for the occupiers. Um, so its whole military strategy, because if you, if you think about it, its military budget, at least in 2018, was roughly $13 billion. In 2013, the U.S. military budget was around $650 billion. So the U.S. military budget is a fraction of the U.S. one. It makes up for it in unconventional ways really towards defensive strategies, right? So I would say the Iranians don't stand to gain much from it, except for, you know, there's some basic national pride that they say that we have to defend. For instance, I was watching CNN the other day, and one of the commentators was talking about how Iran has taken a hard line by saying that it would defend its borders, it would continue to defend its borders and its (laughs) airspace. And that's not really a hard line. That's just basic. Any government would do that. Um, The United States would do it, you know, obviously, and and no one would fault it. So its it's defensive strategy is really basically the territorial integrity of the country and having to be able to live with itself in the future, not um, essentially taking a knee with the United States. The American strategy in terms of what it's going to get, Mm -hmm. uh, that's also hard to say because it's really, again, it's an incoherent strategy. I think Trump really felt, or maybe he was led to believe, that the sanctions would cause Iran to um, renegotiate the nuclear um, nuclear program or the nuclear treaty. And then President Trump would have another PR moment where he can meet with President Rouhani, take photos, and be like, look what I'm, I'm the statesman, look what I'm able to do. I mean, he's, he's been doing that with the Korean president, North Korean president, even though there's no tangible results for anything. It's just, you know, photo ops. I think he was trying to look for something like that. Uh, it's really unrealistic, to be honest with you. Um, this, the Iranian president has already stuck his, his neck out once mm-hmm. by negotiating this agreement, an agreement with not just the United States, but the European powers, China and Russia, and it was backed by the UN Security Council resolution. That has not been violated. There is zero trust on the Iranian side. I think that a realistic course would be for the United States to re-enter the agreement and then discuss the outstanding issues that exist between Iran and the United States. And those outstanding issues really don't have anything to do with Iran's nuclear program. It's, you know, Iranian support for Hezbollah or Hamas or, um, you know, its impact or its influence in Iraq. Those are things that have to be negotiated, even though when the nuclear agreement was signed by President Obama, um, the nuclear-related sanctions were removed. But the other sanctions that had been on Iran that was related to Iran's role in the region, all of that remained in place. One thing that's, you know, I'm really glad that you brought this up because it's foreign policy in the United States toward Iran and toward the um, the entire Middle East, maybe just the world, you could say, has been bipartisan. And even you see in the New York Times when they had an, an op-ed that said, sorry, just an editorial that said that President Trump should go to Congress if he's going to start a war in Iran. It wasn't he shouldn't start it, but he should, you know, follow proper procedures and go to Congress. And I think that that's 
really indicative. Even though people, you know, don't want this war or think that they want to go back to the agreement, it does beg the question, you know, the largest military power the world's ever seen, the United States, is hell-bent, seemingly, on at least, you know, threatening. And that seems to be bipartisan. And Obama was criticized, or Kerry, for even entering into an agreement that somehow diplomacy is weakness. Maybe you could just say a few little words about that. Oh, you know, I don't want to generalize American culture, but I do feel like there is a militaristic component to it for many, not all, obviously. So even that talk about how it has to go to Congress, mm-hmm. you, could even, you could even see it right now. A lot of Democrats are talking about how America should indeed respond, but it should be measured, it should be calculated, blah, 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 because they don't want to be seen as weak in terms right. of foreign policy. So, you know, it, it, it's not weakness to be reasonable. It's also not weakness to think about what brought us to this point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about Iranian escalation, but all of this escalation really began with the subversion of, of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, and the sanctions. So these leaders don't want to seem weak or they don't want to seem like they're kowtowing to foreign aggression. But, you know, we have to look at a causal relationship between what's happening and how we're spiraling down and where it all began. Let me um, ask so you this. Just yeah. uh, well, one is, what do you think uh, was the Iranian strategy or message in shooting down the drone, and how you mentioned that you know the U.S. has to come back into the agreement, and how could you see that taking place without a massive loss of face? Let's say. Okay, so the downing of the drone. I would say that first of all, it's also really hard to know because both governments are saying different things. Mm-hmm. The Iranian government saying that they had their sights on another aircraft that they knew had people inside of it, and they didn't shoot at that. We don't know if that's necessarily true. We just don't know, right? Mm-hmm. But they took down this drone. What I read is that the downing of this drone that had stealth technology was a surprise to the Department of Defense, was a surprise to the Pentagon. So I think the signal was that, you know, you may think of us as a third-rate power. You may look at our military budget and laugh compared to yours, but our signal to you is that we we can defend ourselves to a certain extent. And if you do attack us, it won't be a walk in the park the way it was in Iraq, relatively speaking, rather, because it wasn't a walk in the park in Iraq, but it will look like a walk in the park compared to what would happen if you attacked us or invaded our country. So I think the signal was, you know, we have asymmetrical, unconventional methods. This stuff technology that you think was undetected, we detected it. Right. I want to ask you just finally, and I'll give you just a couple of minutes, and perhaps it's unfair, but your research is on the green uprisings contesting the Iranian revolution. And what we've seen is over and over again, the population mobilizing and then being squashed, let's say. How do you see it in this atmosphere today, where, you, as you mentioned, you have a more moderate president, but you now have this intensification of hostilities from the United States? And how do you see that in terms of because you also mentioned that the U.S. policy seems to be that you, you know, bomb them or sanction them into submission till they cry uncle, and hopefully that'll lead to some sort of popular uprising. It, it's never worked, but tell me what you think, knowing as you do the internal situation. That's a, really good, that's a really great question. Thank you. All of them have been really good questions, but this one in particular, because it's so important to understand that. First, the Green Uprising in 2009, that kind of tapered off in 2010, People look at people look at it as a failure because it didn't abrogate Ahmadinejad's election win. It didn't bring down the system that ratified it, and so people look at it as a failure. But it had a lot of successes, 
The one success was that it kind of broke the taboo of criticizing Iran's government structures, specifically the position of the supreme leader. It terrified the government into really understanding that it does lack a lot of popular support. Uh, and so when President Obama then sanctioned Iran a few years later over its nuclear program, one reason why the Iranian government was at the time susceptible towards a, an agreement was because it feared its own population. And so I would say that even the Iran nuclear agreement at the time was a success of the uprising, even though it failed the uprising to cancel the election win of Ahmadinejad. What's happening today is that um, those sanctions are really, uh, really hurting regular Iranians, uh, especially from the lower and middle classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though the U.S. Uh, or the Trump administration says that the sanctions are geared or aimed at the Iranian government. While I would say that really what happens within Iran is not the business of any other country, and that's really important to understand. But if the United States dreams of having a more accountable system of governance in Iran, then you have to realize that only the Iranian people can affect that change. Sanctioning them makes that less likely. Because when people are too busy trying to survive and put food on the table, they have less time and opportunity to go and protest. I remember this really good quote from the Iranian Revolution of 1978-79 that they interviewed basically a day laborer. And they said, are you going to join the protest? And he's like, you have to have a full stomach to go and protest. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. When your book comes out, we're going to do an on-air review of it, and I hope you'll come back because it sounds like this is a subject that could take a lot of time and will be very important to look at. And I want to thank you for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. You as well. Okay, I've been speaking with Puya Ali Magam. He's a historian of the modern Middle East and teaches at MIT. His forthcoming book is called Contesting the Iranian Revolution, The Green Uprisings. That's going to be out next year, and we're going to talk about it by Cambridge University Press, and he tweets at Apuya, A-P-O-U-Y-A, and Facebook at the same thing. And thanks so much for joining us today, Puya. Thank you. Thank you as well. Thanks. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. We're going to talk about China and Hong Kong today. There have been huge protests going on for more than a week in Hong Kong, protesting a controversial extradition bill that, if passed, would allow suspects to be sent to mainland China for trial. The huge demonstrations seem to echo or maybe even dwarf the massive ones from the umbrella movement in 2014. And they've been met with what some are saying is the worst police violence since Hong Kong was handed over to China in 1997. On Twitter and elsewhere, you can see the police using volleys of tear gas and rubber bullets. Louise Lam reports that police tactics include preemptive kettling, trapping people in in metro stations, limiting march or space on roads to limit the size of the march, and none of it seems to have worked. She also reports that one-third of the protesters are protesting for the very first time. Both Beijing and Hong Kong's leader, Carrie Lam, have taken 
aim at the demonstrators describing the protests as a riot, while the Hong Kong Bar Association has called for an independent inquiry into the use of excessive force by police. So to unravel all of these underlying issues, we talk to Jeff Wasserstrom, who was in Hong Kong. And Jeff Wasserstrom is the Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine, where he teaches Chinese history. He's uh, writing a short book on Hong Kong that will be published in the Columbia Global Report series. His other books include The Updated China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know by Oxford University Press, and among others, Eight Juxtapositions, China Through Imperfect Analogies from Mark Twain to Manchukuo in 2016. His latest article that's published June 12th at The Atlantic is on the protests in Hong Kong, and it's called The Infamous Date That Looms Over the Hong Kong Protests. We're going to talk about that as well. And Jeff tweets at Jay Wassers. Welcome to Jacobin Radio, Jeff Wasserstrom. Oh, it's great to be on. And this is a topic, of course, that's very close to my heart and very close to what I research. So it's a great combination to be talking about it. Well, maybe we should just begin. Since you've just returned and you were there at the run-up, if not at least the first of the demonstrations, can you describe what you saw and what is going on? So, yeah, I was there for uh, the June 4th vigil. Hong Kong and Macau are the only parts of the People's Republic of China where there can be any kind of commemoration of the June 4th massacre of 1989. And there are very small ones in Macau and very big ones in Hong Kong. And I was there for the first time for uh, the vigil marking the 30th anniversary of that um, massacre on the mainland. And at the end of that vigil, there were calls for people to turn out um, the following Sunday, uh, June 9th, for this big march. Uh, and that was the, the June 9th march was the really big one that, that started this whole series of very dramatic events. I, I left to come back to the United States on June 7th, so I missed that June 9th march. But just before I left, I saw a very interesting um, smaller march, but I think it was interesting because of what it was. It was 3,000 or so members of the legal profession, lawyers and others, all of whom were dressed in black mm. and held a silent protest, a silent march, which was very powerful. These were members of a particular um, profession saying they felt that this extradition law was going to was going to ruin their ability to do what they do. And in Hong Kong, there's a great deal of pride in the rule of law existing there and courts having their own independence and making things very, very different from how things operate on the mainland, where you're really at the mercy of a very capricious system. So the extradition law would, would take people from um, the Hong Kong system, potentially, to the mainland one, where they'd be at the mercy of very politicized courts. So that was going to be my next question, and that is simply, what's the significance of that bill, and why do people see it as such a threat? And maybe you could answer that, and then we can go into talking about the role of Carrie Lam. Is she, a, you know, is she acting as the governor of Hong Kong, or is she a tool of Beijing, a little bit of both? What do you think? Well, sure. About the extradition law first, I think it's it's it should be remembered that there have been a whole series of incursions on Hong Kong's. Uh, Hong Kong was promised a high degree of autonomy for the 50 years after it was um, integrated into the People's Republic of China. And in the last years, we've seen all kinds of incursions against that autonomy, um, moves to try to make Hong Kong more like a mainland city. And many of those have sparked protests, sometimes quite small ones, sometimes very large ones, with the umbrella movement being an example of very large ones. Um, sometimes Beijing and the, the Hong Kong government, those in the Hong Kong government basically doing the bidding of Beijing, 
overstep and do something that just sets off a big reaction. Sometimes they get away with these chipping away things, but sometimes people respond. And the reason why I think the extradition law, people responded as dramatically as they did, was this the case of a situation where people in many different walks of life could imagine themselves being affected by it? Sometimes when there's a rule that comes in that only affects people that do very specific things, um, a lot of people won't respond. But this was something everybody could, could imagine a situation in which they or someone they love would do something that angered the, Beijing, the, the mainland authorities, and then the mainland authorities called for this person to be tried across the border on the mainland. Because what is seen as running afoul of mainland laws is always shifting. Uh, you can get in trouble for simply reposting, tweeting on, uh, retweeting something that refers to um, a protest. That can be seen as you helping to incite a protest. Th these are the kinds of things, it's always shifting on the mainland. So I think people feel that their sense of security and being able to just live the kind of life that they live in Hong Kong, which you're not constantly watching what you say and what you do, um, was was hindered. So I think that's why this move, but it's also important to remember it's come on the back of a whole series of moves. In the last the last few years, there have been cases like there were some booksellers who were kidnapped because mm -hmm. they were publishing books that the mainland didn't like. Um, that was something that, that angered people in Hong Kong. Um, there have been moves that have, have been seen as um, self-censorship by the press. There's been all kinds of little things happening, but this was something that, that people could all relate to. I wanted to ask just on that. So does it appear to most people and the thing that they most fear is uh, that they will be caught doing anything that Beijing could see as critical of the government in China? In other words, are these all sort of the kind of free speech issues and the right to, let's say, protest? Or is it broader than that? I mean, maybe you could just describe, you know, a sort of larger sense of this unease. Is it been that the government has targeted protesters or is it larger than that? So there were in April and there have been other times, too, when people who were leaders of protests have been sentenced to prison terms. And, you know, these were things that in, involved in kind of nonviolent civil disobedience that in an, in an earlier period, you wouldn't get in trouble for in, in Hong Kong. Um, it's not unheard of, but people could say in that point, well, I'm not going to lead a protest. But the kinds of scenarios that people have in their minds would be, you know, what if you were visiting uh, a friend on the mainland and brought a, brought a book that you thought they might be interested in that was about Xi Jinping? And, and you didn't really think that much about it. You just, you know, you'd bought it and say, say it was even about his wife, who's a singer. Um, and, you know, you'd known that somebody on the mainland was interested in um, his wife's singing career. And you, you brought this book over there. And then you went back to Hong Kong and you had left it there. And then um, at a later point, the authorities on the mainland realized that that book has something that's talking about the private lives of Xi Jinping and his wife, which is something you're not supposed to talk about. And so suddenly it, it would be this innocuous enough act of you know give, giving a present to somebody on the mainland might suddenly seem like something that could get you in trouble. And you're back in Hong Kong. And the authorities say, well, somebody brought subversive materials in here. You know, it's hard to give the specifics of this, but there's a sense that there's a capriciousness to the way laws are enforced on the mainland. And you just don't have legal protections when you're there. So there's this sense of vulnerability. And that's leading to people, um, you know, the, the comment you made about a third of the people on the streets um, 
seem to be people who've never protested before. This is something that, you know, even people who were would have described themselves as fairly non-political um, have have been agitated by. I heard stories of this before I left um, Hong Kong when I was there during the lead up to this big march where people were just telling me about conversations they had with shop clerks or in one case, somebody was talking about he goes to a gym and his personal trainer there had never brought up a political a subject before, but out of the blue, asked uh, asked my friend if he was planning to go to the march on Sunday. So this is just something that I think um, people have heard just lots of stories of all kinds of um, minor infractions somehow getting the Chinese Communist Party um, annoyed at somebody on the mainland, and they're suddenly thinking that they would be vulnerable to that kind of capriciousness. And what about, as you know, as you just mentioned, Jeff uh, Wasserstrom, that's that's fairly, you know, that's that's actually very, what's the word? It's huge what you're implying by that. And I wondered if you could contrast it to how people felt about expressing their opinions, say, before this period, when there seems to be this vigilant eye. And also, I think you just mentioned, too, that people are used to, let's call it the rule of law, but what seems to operate in Beijing are just rules, and rules can change. So there's uneasiness about anything that you may have said or owned or thought about, not knowing how it's going to be taken, let's say, by the authorities. And this sort of begs the larger question. I want to get your impression of this about what the relationship is in terms of what does this autonomy mean has, you know, between Beijing and Hong Kong? Sure. Well, one of the things to keep in mind is that things have been tightening on the mainland. So there was a lot more a lot more laxity in terms of what people would say in private settings and you know various things on the mainland uh, ten or twelve years ago than there is now so and there's an awareness in Hong Kong that 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 things have been tightening that people are now watching uh, have gone from watching what they say in public to also watching what they say in private um, on the mainland in Hong Kong, you could really not have to worry that much about what you were saying in public or in private um, under this you'll you're suddenly feeling that you need to watch at least what you what you say in public. Um, and there is a difference there. Yes, I think the rule of law to some extent exists in Hong Kong, whereas in, on the mainland is ruled by law. You know, the law is more, more as a, uh, a weapon against you. Um, and there are cases, there were cases during the umbrella movement. It was very striking to me as somebody who tracks mainland issues more than Hong Kong ones, when the police arrested some protesters and the courts sort of said, you have to let them go. You don't have good charges against them. That that doesn't <laughs> right. happen on the mainland. You know, it really isn't the same. But about the uh, the degree of autonomy. Um, so it's important to keep in mind that Hong Kong was not a completely free democratic society before 1997. It was a British crown colony. There were limits on um, some things you could do. Some of the laws that are being used to punish people within Hong Kong are holdovers from colonial era laws. So, you know, in colonial system, uh, you know, you can't do whatever you want, but there was a degree of um, separation. There was a degree of rule of law, and I think that's why it's very important. Um, there wasn't full democracy, but there was some sense of being able uh, be able to speak out. So there were periods when the colonial authorities uh, were quite rigid, but during the lead up to 1997, there was a loosening of a variety of things, and there was an integration, uh, um, an introduction, at least. Uh, a small degree of democracy. And the idea was that after 1997, there would be 50 years when that would continue. And in fact, there was a sense that there would be, if anything, 
an increase in the say that the people of Hong Kong had in how they were governed. And initially, um, there were a lot of fears. Initially, there was a lot of pessimistic expectation, and, and I expected things to be tightened up quite quickly after the handover. But for um, a decade and more after the handover, Beijing used a fairly light touch, and there was um, a degree to which uh, Hong Kong was allowed, all kinds of things were allowed to happen in Hong Kong that, that, that didn't happen on the mainland. The press could publish um, criticisms of policies in Beijing that, that wouldn't be allowed on, on any mainland um, newspaper. And there was a sense in which Hong Kong had um, the chief executive officer, the chief executive in Hong Kong, the position Carrie Lam has now, uh-huh. um, there was a, there was a, it's a voted, you're voted into that position, but the only people you can vote for are people who are carefully vetted and are seen as being willing to not challenge Beijing too directly. So the umbrella movement in 2014 was an effort to try to push for a truer kind of um, suffrage when it came to choosing the chief executive, of doing away with that process of only being able to choose between um, a couple of carefully vetted candidates. Um, So I think that the relationship between Hong Kong and um, uh, Beijing, I mean, it's a special situation. We we, we never had this in other Communist Party-run settings where you had territories, um, Hong Kong, and to, to a lesser extent, Macau, but Macau's yeah. more, more tightly controlled, but still has a degree of this, that you have places within a Communist Party-run state that are much freer in terms of what people can do and say and have a much more vibrant uh, civil society. So the question has always been, how, uh, how long would Beijing allow this kind of difference to exist without trying to tighten the screws on it? And what would be the push and pull when it did try to tighten things? And so there are a variety of things. The, the education system is different in Hong Kong. But in 2012, um, there was an effort to try to bring more of a kind of patriotic education mm-hmm. that was on the mainland uh, into Hong Kong, in which you would have less discussion or no discussion, perhaps, in schools of uh, the June 4th massacre of 1989, you would have less attention to the negative things that the Communist Party has done. And there were big protests there, largely led by um, teenagers, including a very young Joshua Wong, um, who was then in um, high school, in middle school, well, high, high school, I don't know, high school, no. and like he was um, fifteen or sixteen, I thought. Yeah, 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 and 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 this was successful. I mean, the the that. That this was an example of overreach, where there was such a pushback by kids, and it's okay to call them kids because they they were, and um, but also other members of society that backed them up, and that patriotic education wasn't wasn't brought in. So that was an example of a kind of of a way in which protests uh, were successful. And some of the people who were involved in that were then involved two years later, including you know Joshua Wong, who was then you know, still young, but a little bit older and became the international face of the umbrella movement, the umbrella movement didn't succeed in its specific goal of widening um, the franchise. And Carrie Lam became the new um, chief executive, chosen very much the way the chief executive had the last time around. And there were some hopes, there there, there are always some hopes that a new um, chief executive will perhaps be more truly caring about Hong Kong's interests and less ready to do the bidding of Beijing's. But 
And I just uh, wanted to ask on that, is she somebody that, um, or or does the chief executive have to have a special relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, or can they be just a, you know, sort of always born and bred in Hong Kong and somebody that Beijing at least thinks they can rely upon to carry out its uh, policies? It's it's somebody that Beijing feels comfortable being willing to take some um, some 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 orders. But it, they are people who can present themselves as um, as being from and speaking for Hong Kong. So it's not as though it's 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 a kind of colonial arrangement because there are people in this distant capital that are really calling the shots and putting the pressure on. But it's not quite like the colonial arrangement where somebody from the metropole comes out as the you know appointed governor general. The way it was a it was somebody from Britain who would come over um, to to be the governor general of Hong Kong when it was a formal colony. And that's one of the reasons why, in the Atlantic piece you mentioned, I brought up the structure within the the Soviet uh, the Soviet bloc during the Cold right. War, right. where you would have um, whoever was in charge in Poland or in um, in Hungary or in Czechoslovakia, as it was then, would be somebody who was from that place, but when push came to shove, usually would need to be taking, doing the bidding to some extent of uh, Moscow. And so I think that's where, you know, it's not a perfect analogy. None of these things are are exact um, because, you know, the but it Poland works. was not considered part of the same country as, you know, the Soviet Union. It was it was a bloc, whereas Hong Kong is considered part of the People's Republic of China. But I think there are parallels that are um, that are worth thinking about in that kind of quasi-colonial relationship there. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm speaking with Jeff Wasserstrom. Well, you you bring up in your article in The Atlantic, and I wanted to ask you about the title of it, too, which was the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen hangs over this protest. That's not the exact title. But, you know, in talking about the relationship, say, that Poland had to the Soviet Union, even though it was an independent country, in most ways, it was under the Soviet bloc, and those who dissented and dissented often would describe their dissent as self-limiting, and it would just go to the point, you know, to which, you know, they would not get Soviet troops. That didn't always, they got martial law in the famous case, but it was self-limiting, and that kind of is similar, isn't it, to what's going on in Hong Kong? Yeah, I think there are, there are a lot. I mean, there's been a lot of question, will People's Liberation Army troops come in to try to quell unrest in Hong Kong? And there's worry about that. And so some of the logic can be, and this can be true in different kind of collaborations, idea that, look, look, we're trying to keep things under control so that worse things don't happen um, to this community. There, There is a kind of degree in that self-limiting. I mean, I... I played in that piece on the fact that June 4th, 1989, was both the day that there was a massacre in Beijing and a day that Solidarity won its Mm -hmm. first electoral victory in um, Poland. And just saying that that those are two very different outcomes. Um, But actually, I, I think some readers, people reading it quickly, might have thought I was suggesting that there would be um, that there's the potential for the kind of result in Hong Kong now that there was um, in 1989 in Poland with a real dramatic shift. And I don't see that happening because one of the things that made change possible 
in Poland then was that there had been changes going on in Moscow, that Moscow was moving to having a lighter grip um, under Gorbachev, whereas right now Xi Jinping is a very hardline leader in Beijing. So it's not that I don't think is. I, I was saying it's worth thinking about solidarity. Yeah. But the solidarity movement also solidarity that flourished for a little while and then was clamped down upon um, in 1981, I think it was, with the imposition of martial law and leaders of um, of the movement ending up in prison. So I think it's, um, I mean, but but there too, not it, it was a failure in that earlier period, but that didn't mean it would never succeed. So I was hoping to try to give, just remind people of the unexpected twists and turns that history can take and the fact that sometimes a movement that seems a complete failure in the short run can provide people with with resources that they can draw upon when the situation changes, which I think is what happened to some extent with Poland. And that article that you're referring to is by Jeff Wasserstrom in The Atlantic. It's called The Infamous Date That Looms Over the Hong Kong Protest. Well, I want to go back now to a couple of things that you mentioned. And one is this push-pull relationship. But the other is, you know, the series of protests that have only gotten larger over the years in Hong Kong, and not just larger, but led by younger people. You mentioned Joshua Wong in high school, but I think a lot of commentators have said that this one is almost led by middle school kids. And then on the other hand, given that, how is it that Carrie Lam, you know, could even imagine that she could implement such an extreme measure as this extradition bill without, you know, getting a lot of protest and pushback? So I think, I think, yeah, there've been, there've been protests and Hong Kong, one of the really interesting things for me as somebody who first went to Hong Kong in the, the mid to late 80s is Hong Kong's reputation then was as a very apolitical place. The idea was that people cared about making money. They didn't, you know, entertaining themselves, eating good food because it's a wonderful place to live and these kinds of things if, if you have any, any means. And then suddenly they, they, they continually surprised mm-hmm. people by being, being, um, being politicized by things that happened. The 1989 protests on the mainland, happening eight years before Hong Kong was going to go uh, be handed over, galvanized people. And there were very big protests of solidarity with the, the mainland uh, protesters on Hong Kong. And there were, there were um, fundraising concerts and things that helped keep the protests going, in fact, in the mainland. And then in 2003, there was um, Hong Kong was at one of these moments when... Um, the authorities overstepped. They talked about bringing in a new security law, which was, this was the moment where the U.S. had just had the Patriot Act, and what they wanted to bring in wasn't that different from the Patriot Act, but it had this sort of menacing side to it. And there were very large protests then, and that security law um, was put on hold. Then in 2012, there were the protests, 2014 in the protests, and then, and now again, the protests. But, but one thing to think about, and this in, in thinking about Carrie Lam's uh, calculations, that about six months ago, a lot of the kind of conventional wisdom in Hong Kong was that people were really, um, that the people who had been activists were quite beaten down and despondent. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a kind of mood of despair that maybe there wouldn't be more protests if something happened because people had been so discouraged about the umbrella movement not succeeding in achieving the specific goals about suffrage that there were these other moves after that to um, 
raise the costs of protests that might scare people away from doing it again. For example, some of the activists, there were some, of course, that have been in prison and, and that are serving Hong Kong now as political prisoners, which they didn't have before. But even ones who weren't in prison um, would have um, their ability to travel to the mainland um, cut off from them. And if you want to work for an international company in Hong Kong, um, they'll want to hire somebody who has an ability to go to the mainland and back because a lot of international companies see Hong Kong as this jumping off point for doing business in the mainland. So there were ways in which the government could put these kind of economic screws on people to try to send messages that, look, you're going to, you know, it's going to cost you if you, you challenge us. And there's also a tendency, and we see this in the United States too, I'm really struck by this. And as a student of student movements, I fall into the trap too, but I'm very aware of it, of writing off generations of people as lacking in the kind of political gumption of a generation or two before. We saw this in America just, you know, two years ago. If you'd said, if you'd asked the person on the street, teenagers these days, are are they the types who you could imagine staging a giant march in Washington? People (laughs) say, no, this this group, you know, they're all on their cell phones. They're taking selfies. They're they're posting Instagram images of the food they're eating. They're chatting. They're entertaining themselves. And then you had Parkland, and then you had this, what seemed to come out of nowhere, this um, youth idealism and very large protests. And you're seeing young people do um, Im- impressive things around climate change in Europe. So in Everywhere. Hong Kong, yeah. too, there was this idea that this generation post-umbrella won't do something like this, and now we've been wrong yet again. Let me just ask you finally, because I'd love to go on for an hour, but don't have that luxury today. But Jeff Washington, it's so interesting. You're raising sort of global and international, you know, aspects of the young today who in many places are protesting because they don't see themselves as having a future or one that's anything like the ones that their parents had if, you know, the climate change doesn't just, you know, destroy life as we know it. But then on the other hand, I want to go back to China. And there, you know, you said that you could be surprised in these protests, you know, just spring up almost continually. It's a little bit early to look ahead at the 50 years after, which is, I guess, what, 2047, when Hong Kong will then be absorbed into China. Is Do you see this as sort of a long-term, slow game to prepare for that? And and do you see China being able to exert the kind of control over information, scrambling internet, you know, uh, scrambling, let's say, cyber messages and things like that to prevent people from knowing? Or is that just something impossible? So it's an unfair question, but how do you see them being able to accomplish this? a giant question, and there is a sort of push and pull, and new technologies both open up new possibilities for protest and open up new possibilities for surveillance and control. And so I think one reason why there's just such a big pushback now in Hong Kong is particularly because there's this fear that the erosion, once it goes, will just keep going and just keep going. And there's a knowledge also of just how sophisticated um, the Chinese Communist Party is getting with, with surveillance and with handling the flow of information and with spinning things inside the country and globally. I mean, this is the moment, uh, this last year has been a time when their reports have been coming out, but haven't gained the traction that, that I would have imagined at a, a, an earlier point in history they would have about 
just really grotesque human rights abuses in Xinjiang, in the far west of the People's Republic of China, where um, estimated a million or more Uyghurs, a largely Muslim ethnic minority group, and other Muslim ethnic minority groups have been disappearing into indoctrination camps. And while word of that is flowing uh, globally, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has done um, a, a, a job that's quite striking in preventing things like iconic photographs that will really get the world outraged uh, by, by controlling access to these places. And they're using very high, uh, high-tech surveillance techniques to keep people in line there. And one chilling thing for, some, for people in Hong Kong was there was a group of Hong Kong um, police that, did a, that were sent to Xinjiang to study the anti-terrorism techniques there. Mm. I mean, control in, in Xinjiang is being justified by the regime through the rhetoric of um, war on terror and things like that. In Hong Kong, it's being justified through another set of uh, discussions of claims of riots, when in fact they're quite peaceful protests. But I think there's a way in which um, there are reasons to worry about the interconnectedness of all of these things. There are reasons why uh, the global discussion about human rights issues in China should try to connect the dots between things that are that are really at the far end of the horrific and things that are just serious encroachment, in, encroachments on the place that has been the freest part of uh, the People's Republic of China. And all of that is worth keeping in mind as we think about, um, we worry about what what can come forward. It's It's very hard to tell because, of course, there are all kinds of issues and problems within the People's Republic of China, their economic um, woes, there are all kinds of things going on. And there have been there are continual predictions of the inability of the Chinese Communist Party to to last in control, and yet it keeps staying in control. So it's, it's very hard to figure out what looking ahead even a couple of years, let alone a couple of decades, we'll, we'll have to say about this. It was an unfair question, but you did a terrific <laughs> job in addressing it. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. Jeff Wasserstrom, he's a Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine, teaching Chinese history, and he's writing a short book on Hong Kong that will be published in the Columbia Global Reports series. His latest article that was published June 12th at The Atlantic is on the protests in Hong Kong called The Infamous Date That Looms Over the Hong Kong Protests. And you can follow him at Jay Wassers on Twitter. Jeff Wasserstrom, thanks so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure to get to talk about this. <laughs> Great. Thanks so thanks. much. Thank you. And I'm Susie Weissman. Don't go away. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Wiseman.